on this very cold day. So we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. We're uh, picking up where we left off last week. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had gone to the island of Cyprus. They had gone around to each of the various synagogues and then eventually ended up in the proconsul's in front of the proconsul and uh, also this this person who opposed them, this magician, um, and ended up sharing the gospel with the proconsul and uh, thwarting this magician who opposed the gospel. Uh, from Cyprus, they have now gotten a, in a, into a boat and they've left the island of Cyprus and headed north towards uh, what is today modern-day Turkey. Okay, So that's where our text leads us. It's Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. So with that, let me go ahead and read God's Word. You can find it in your bulletin. It's from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had been, when he had, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, "I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as He promised." Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you... And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message, the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understood the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found Him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. 
Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the ancient truths and how they all pointed to Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning we might see more clearly Christ and we might understand His love for us in the Gospel. We pray that You would help me as Your servant preach Your Word faithfully. Uh, Work in us by Your Spirit, we ask. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a question. What makes great literature? That's that's probably a a debated thing, right? Uh, How do we define what great literature is? Um, Maybe you could even simply say it's you know it when you read it. Uh, People debate the, the makings of great literature all the time. But I think part of what makes great literature is that we can see ourselves in the story. We can identify with the characters, the situation. And I think it's even more significant when we read, say, a biography or a history. If we identify with the persons or situations, we become invested in a new way, in a different way. It can be an even completely foreign story, something that has no sort of formal relationship to any experience we've had, but if it's a common theme that we, we understand, we can relate to it. That's what makes a great story. Uh, now think of it for a moment in terms of your own story. If somebody's telling a story about you, or you read uh, a snippet of a story about you, or your friend or your family member tells a story about you, you have an investment in a whole new way. Isn't that right? When I uh, tell stories to my children, they love to hear them. Not because I'm a great storyteller or anything, but our kids are enraptured. Why are they enraptured when we tell them a story? Because it's their story. It's about them. They're invested. They identify with the story. Well, the Apostle Paul here in our text, like Peter in the sermon in chapter 2 of Acts, recounts the history of the people of Israel. He's, of course, speaking in a synagogue to many uh, for whom this is their ancient story. This is their story that he's retelling. It's Paul's own story. It's part of his own life history. It's about their own people, their suffering, their sin, their hope and longing. And it is in that that he shows how Jesus is a part of that story. 
how He came to save them from their sin as their Messiah. We've, I've entitled this The Old, Old Story, partly because in the back of my mind I had an old Baptist hymn in, in my memory. And Brad <laughs> picked that memory too, and he put that hymn into our liturgy. We'll sing it at the end. Um, but there's something about retelling stories that we're invested in. We don't tire of them. I can't tell you how many times I tell the same story. Maybe they do tire of them. <laughs> but they ask for them, my kids. Mostly just my kids, not so much Aaron. They asked me to tell. We want to hear story that we're a part of, that we're identified in it. And this is what we see here, this old, old story. It's one that we ought to tell over and over again. It's one that we belong to as well, not just the ancient Israelites. One that we can see ourselves in, our suffering, our sin, our hope, our longing. It's a story in which we see Jesus as our Savior. So as we look at the text this morning, I want you to see that this is your story. That Christ is your Savior. So let's turn to our text and we'll, we'll walk through Paul's sermon. Uh, a formal outline, but I want to walk through uh, the text. So first, a little bit about the context. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they land uh, in, uh, on the coast. Uh, at this point, John Mark leaves them. He goes back, presumably, to Jerusalem. Um, and we'll learn about this later, but this becomes a problem for the Apostle Paul. Uh, in chapter 15, we'll see how it created a division between Paul and Barnabas because of what John Mark does here. But we aren't told why he leaves. We aren't given any, inst- in, in, any reasons at this point. And so we leave John Mark, uh, and they head up into the mountains to a city called uh, Pisidia, Antioch. Remember, they had come from Antioch in Syria, and this gets a little confusing because there's multiple cities by the same name, but that's not that different from here, right? We can go from Manchester, Connecticut, to Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, and we have to clarify which Manchester we're talking about. Um, So they were going from uh, that sort of um, coastline along the, the... the eastern edge of the Mediterranean where Syria is, and they were leaving from Antioch, and they went to Cyprus, and they landed, I'm probably doing this backwards, so you guys need to see it this way, here's the coast, and they went from Antioch to Cyprus, an island, and then they headed north to this area of Turkey. Along the coast, they headed off the coast and went up north into the area what was called Galatia, um, but this particular area called Pisidia, and a city called Antioch. It wasn't that far from from Tarsus where Paul was from. So you kind of wonder how they ended up there. Maybe it was a connection of Paul's, we aren't told. But anyway, they're in what is today modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. So, where do they go? Well, we've already looked at this in the past. They go first to the synagogue. This would have been a natural entrance into the area. They, of course, themselves were Jewish and had an opportunity uh, to connect with that community. And so they go into the synagogue. And the, there was a crowd in front of them. This, was, this would have been diaspora Jews, Jews from, that were, had been living in Asia Minor for some time. And then there were also Gentiles who were there that were God-fearers or converts uh, or people that were in the process of coming to. So it was a mixed group of Gentile and Jew. It's interesting, these Gentiles, 
saw in the ancient stories of Israel their own story. It's why they stayed. It's why they were invested. They saw something in that ancient story. They wanted to be in relationship with this God of Israel because they identified themselves with this people, with their issues and sins and proclivities. And we'll get to this as we look at the the sermon. Well, it was customary in the Jewish synagogue then, even as it is today, to follow a lectionary of readings from the Old Testament. They would read one reading from uh, the, the Torah or the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then they would read from the history or from the prophets, the, the, the later writings. Uh, so they'd read one of those two sections and then they, throughout the service they would sing psalms and, and re- recite some of the, the other uh, poetic literature. So they probably had a reading, and we aren't given what reading it was. There's a lot of conjecture on that, based on Paul's sermon, what the reading might have been. Maybe it was from Psalm 2. Paul refers to Psalm 2, this messianic psalm about uh, about the father begetting the son. Uh, but we don't know. But after the reading, it was, it was the case that somebody would give a message, a homily, a sermon, as, as I'm doing right now. It's not dissimilar from a church service. And, and actually, throughout history, the church has copied the synagogue worship in, in many respects, in many ways. And so they asked Paul. Paul would have been a prominent person in any way, and in prominent enough guests that he was asked to speak. And he stands up and he motions. And I always was curious, what was he motioning? Hey! No, I think he was just saying, come, listen. I have good news for you. I have something that you need to hear that's part of your story that you have not heard yet. And he motions to them. So let's turn to the sermon itself. I'm just uh, going to outline the sermon, uh, and then we'll kind of delve into it a little bit. But scholars believe that there was uh, standard content that would typically be included when there was this kind of historical recounting of the history of Israel. In other words, if you were telling a long story that everyone was familiar with, you would include just enough details to jog everyone's memory. And then you would use specific details that helped to get your point across. Uh, So they would have, and we see this, in Peter in his sermon isn't too dissimilar from Paul's in terms of its content. Kind of ran through the history of Israel. Stephen did the same thing. Do you remember before Stephen was martyred? He ran through this sort of litany of the history of Israel uh, with a particular focus. And here Paul again. They would have had an understanding. It was like Paul using shorthand. Remember when. We do this when we tell stories, don't we? Don't we? Do you remember the time when? Right? We say that. And then everyone nods, and then you go on to say, well, such and such and such. The specifics of what you're trying to get across. So, this is what the Apostle Paul does. He runs through this common litany. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't always do this in his sermons. We know that in Athens... Uh, he was not confronted with a Jewish audience, but rather was confronted with a very pagan audience, and he takes a completely different approach. We'll see that in chapter 17 as we move forward in the book of Acts. 
But here is the brief outline of the sermon, just the sort of nuts and bolts, if you will. Paul begins with Israel's time in Egypt, Egypt and the Exodus, and then briefly their wanderings and their conquest of Canaan. Then he moves very briefly to the period of Judges and to Samuel, he just mentions, and then the coming of King Saul and Saul's rejection and King David. But it was at this point that the sermon takes a turn that the people were not expecting. It was a new part of the story, one that they did not know. He mentions Jesus as the Savior. And then he talks about John the Baptist, who prepared the way. It was this thousand-year leap. A thousand-year leap, right? We're going to talk about uh, Egypt and the Exodus and the period of Judges and the conquest of Canaan, the period of Judges, and then uh, the period of Kings. Oh, and now Jesus. It's a big leap. thousand-year jump. It's this new part of the story. Finally, he talks about Jesus, his death, and particularly Jesus' resurrection. Finally, Paul concludes with the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and a call to believe and a warning for unbelief. There you go. I've summarized kind of what's the sort of outline of the sermon. I said at the very outset of this that it's our aim to see our story in this ancient one and in doing so understand Christ as our Savior. We can only do that if we dig a little deeper into the sermon and into this ancient story. What was the shorthand getting at that Paul uses? So let's unpack it. The first thing to note in Paul's retelling of the Old Testament portion of the story is its focus on two things. God's work of salvation and Israel's sinfulness. God's power and Israel's weakness. There's sort of two ways of putting it. God working Israel's sinfulness. Let's see how this plays itself out in the text. So first, Paul opens with, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. What do we note from here, particularly about God and about His power, about His person? First, we note that God is the one who chose their fathers. He called Abraham. He didn't mention Abraham, but He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He established him uh, eventually in Egypt under Joseph, remember, the whole story. And eventually, they grew and grew under oppression. It was a, it was a work of God's miraculous power that while they were being oppressed... While they were under slavery, God made them into a great people. So that after 400 years, when they left, they left as a multitude of people headed across uh, the land to Canaan. Paul is emphasizing the greatness of God, that he made a people for himself, and that he made them great. And even in the face of their suffering, he delivered them. The Exodus event is the paradigmatic, it is the paradigm event for all redemptive talks in the rest of Scripture. Every time redemption comes up, it at least alludes to, if not directly, looks back at this event in Egypt. It 
it was the defining picture of what it meant for the people of God to be delivered from under oppression, from under uh, uh, bondage and slavery, and into freedom. So I think it's significant that the Apostle Paul starts here, this moment of redemption, because that's what he's going to be talking about at the very end. He's going to be talking about being freed from bondage and slavery. So he begins there and he ends there. It's God's work that he's doing. What can we draw for ourselves? How can we identify ourselves at this point in the story? I think we can identify ourselves, can't we? A few ways. We can identify with Israel. We can identify with that longing to belong to a people. We can identify it with that desire to be shown love. We can understand the struggle of suffering and oppression that they go through. Maybe not in their specifics, but we all have our own story in that regard. And we can, we can relate by analogy. And we can understand their longing and desire for deliverance from bondage. But the text takes an interesting turn. Suddenly the hearers are faced with this glaring reality. Uh, Suddenly the hearers uh, are noting that they are, the Israelites are not just oppressed, but that they're also sinful. We see in Israel's sin. Look here just, uh, just briefly um, at verse uh, uh, 18 and 19. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after that, destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So that verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. What an interesting turn of a phrase. That's a pretty, we think of putting up with somebody as kind of a negative term. And it is, it has a negative connotation, doesn't it? But what, is it, what does it insinuate? What does it tell us about the people of Israel? If you were to go back uh, to that, pa- those passages in Scripture, particularly from the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, uh, we get a sense of who these Israelites were and what they were like. Within moments of being free from Egypt, of finding themselves across uh, the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army destroyed under the waters uh, of, uh, of the Red Sea... What do they do immediately? They start to complain. And they start to grumble. We have no water. We have no food. And this grumbling and complaining continues consistently throughout their wandering period. We know that they even go so far as to reject God and to try to worship uh, the golden calf. He put up with them. Let me ask you this question. Who of us can't identify with Israel? Who of us doesn't understand how often we complain and we grumble against God despite what He has done for us? Who of us doesn't struggle with something like contentment or trust? If you want to identify more, just go back and read those passages of Scripture. 
Yet God was putting up with them. Another way of saying that was God was bearing with them. In all their sin, the rejection of Him, He was putting up with them. It was God's grace that He didn't abandon them. This is the nature of God. How precious the truth is it that God puts up with us, that He He bears with us in our weakness. Isn't that one of the most precious things that we have about God, that He that He does not treat us as we deserve, but He comes alongside us in our weakness, that He's patient with us, that He bears with us, that He's merciful towards us. Then it just says, the next section just says that God gave them judges in Samuel the prophet. Talk about a gloss. God gave them judges. Well, what's the story of the judges? If if the story of the wandering in in, uh, the wilderness was all about grumbling and complaining, the story of judges is all about degeneration. It was all about devolution. It was all about absolute grotesque sin on the part of Israel and rebellion against God. The theme verse in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. This was the nature of Judges. And what did God do? Well, He'd give them over to the various foreign powers until they cried out to Him and said, Lord, save us! And then He would raise up a judge and the judge would come and deliver them. And the judges themselves were somewhat shady. And Samuel the prophet, this transitional character, whose own sons uh, were... Uh, problematic. There was all sorts of problems in the period of Judges. Again, it wasn't necessary for Paul to regale his audience with all the horrific sins of the Israelites during this period or how God had delivered them over and over and over again. And here's the thing. The whole period ended... You can go back into 1 Samuel chapter 8. It all ended with the Israelites getting fed up with God. We're tired of this whole routine. Give us a king. Like the other nations around us, we want to look like them, we want to act like them, we want to be like them. Would you give us a king? Now, in God's amazing plan of redemption, God would use their wicked request to bring about His glorious, eternal kingdom. And that's what this this all ends in. But at the first step, we see Saul. And the, 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 uh, Paul mentions Saul, uh, his own namesake. He also, from the tribe of Benjamin, both Saul's, um, he gives them Saul. But Saul had to be removed. He was not a godly king. He was a king who rejected God, who didn't obey God. And then... David is mentioned. Finally, finally, we have one piece of Israelite history that's good. And and, and it is good. We have this little note here because he was declared, it says in verse 22, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of course, in Sunday school class, we just read a psalm written by David. What was that psalm? It has those famous lines, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Why did he depend that psalm? Because he committed murder and adultery. God did a lot of putting up. God was full of grace and mercy. God was patient. We can relate, can't we? Maybe not to the specifics. I don't know about you, but I get the Israelites. I get their waywardness, their unwillingness to change, their constant failing, their grumbling and complaining. I get their rejection of God and their lack of faith. I get it. Why? Because I know in my own heart, my own proclivity, my own... The times that I do that over and over and over again, I relate to the Israelites. I see my story in their story. And we long for God who would bear with us and persist with us and be patient towards us, who would pursue us, broken sinners that we are. Well, God had promised David's heir would rule forever on his throne. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Through him would come a savior for his broken, complaining, sinful, and rebellious people. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes. He jumps from David to Jesus. He says these words, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. This is where Paul takes that unexpected turn. In his sermon. Maybe some of the folks had heard of John the Baptist. Maybe maybe they had caught news of him. But he wasn't part of the old, old story. This was something new. But they could see it. John was like Samuel and all the prophets of old. He was a prophet calling the people to repentance. And you can you can kind of get a sense of how the sermon was being preached. Take everything that we've said, those were the memories that were coming across to the Israelites. They themselves were feeling the burden and the weight of their own sin and their relationship to their forebears. Their consciences were pricked. And here's this man, John the Baptist, who's, who's preparing the way of the Lord and saying, Repent! For the Israelite, this would have been a clue. The prophets of old had all done this. Repent! Turn away from your sin. Turn toward God. Have you ever cried while reading a book? (laughs) I, I, I cry sometimes when reading books. The times I cry are when I recognize myself in the character. You ever get that moment where you're all choked up? There's there's one book. It's not even a great piece of literature. It's just a really great story. Um, but it, there's one character in it, a young boy. Uh, and I identified with him in so many ways. His struggle with his own sin, his, his unwillingness to... I mean, they didn't use that language, but his unwillingness to kind of turn and see it. And then, sort of at a moment when you think all is lost... He's, he's saved, and I cry because I get it. Anyway, that's just an example. 
That's how David felt when Nathan told him the story of sheep stealing. You remember that? He was indignant because this man was stealing sheep. Nathan told him this story to point out how he himself had stolen Bathsheba. And as soon as Nathan pointed out to David that you're the man, what did David do? He cried out. He broke down. Created me a clean heart, O God. John came to call the people to repent. But he wasn't the Savior. This is one pointing to the Savior. Paul takes a dramatic pause in verse 26, inviting everyone present into the story. Let's read verse 26. We'll take that same pause. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. In other words, everyone who is here among us, hear these words. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize Him, not nor understood the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. Here it was. Description of the cross. It says, And when they carried it out, all that was written of Him... In other words, this was God's plan. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Can you imagine that moment, this sort of, whoa, what did we just hear moment? People in the synagogue were enraptured with the story, no doubt. How could this possibly be the Messiah, the Savior? After all, if he hung on a tree and he was cursed by God, uh, how could he be the Savior? He died just as David died. And the Messiah is supposed to reign forever. That's why the Apostle Paul actually takes some time to say, well, David died and his body is corrupted. It's in the grave. It's bones now. This Jesus was raised again from the dead. It's that but God moment. Whenever you see, whenever you see in Scripture where someone says but God, you can expect something great to happen. But God raised him from the dead. And then the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, oh, no, by the way, if you have any questions about this, there's hundreds of witnesses. Unfortunately, John Mark didn't come with us. You can, I could, maybe he didn't say that. He was too gracious. <laughs> I'm sure he was thinking it. And here's the good news. Jesus is indeed the Messiah, God's own Son, the incorruptible heir of David, and He came to save you from your sins. Friends, this is the old, old story and you're invited to identify yourself in it. You are invited to see yourself in the painful reality as a sinner just as the Israelites were, yet in the glorious hope that God chose people like you and like me to be His treasured possession. To save us from our sin. He is a mighty God, mighty to save, full of mercy and grace, patient, forbearing. He's a God who puts up with us. And all our ridiculousness. 
Friends, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and to you who believe there is freedom. The word here for freedom at the end, Paul talks about this. He's saying you have freedom uh, from, you're freed, uh, you're not freed by the law of Moses, uh, but you're freed from everything from which you couldn't be freed from before uh, by the law of Moses. In other words, you're free from your sin. This word freedom, it's used multiple times here, is the same word that is used for justified. You're declared forgiven. You are no longer bound under sin and death, but you are set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we all deal with the pain of our sin. And we try to deal with it in all sorts of ways, don't we? We try to get rid of the the guilt by ignoring it. We try to get rid of the guilt by acting like sin isn't sin and just giving in to whatever it is that we want to do. I would say that's the uh, soup du jour, right? Doing, calling sin evil, good, and doing that thing. Sometimes we try to make it up with our own good works. Sometimes we just have this comparison line where we look at somebody else and I'm all, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm okay. There's only one who's able to free us, who's able to justify us, to declare us forgiven. It's Christ alone. And there's a warning at the end. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. It's a warning. Rejecting Christ means continuing to be bound, to still be in Egypt, to be locked in, under the weight of hell itself. Those are strong words. I realize in our day and age, that word is almost like a mocked word. It's a word that people make fun of, but... Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. This is why my plea is for you today. Is either, if you, if you are resonating with this, is something that you have heard over and over again, is to rejoice in the old, old story, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me, and that we can, we can sing about the freedom that we have in Christ, that we have been justified and declared righteous, that we are forgiven. And for you, if you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an opportunity for you to identify yourselves in the story and to rejoice in Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the old, old story. Lord, we ask that You would cause our hearts to turn, to repent from our sin and to put our trust and the faith in Christ daily, recognizing that it's Your story, Your power, Your work that You do in us by Your Spirit. And Lord, encourage us with reminders that that You are one who is patient and You bear with us in our infirmities and that You are doing a work in us. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too have new life and have hope of eternal life with Him. Lord, give us comfort in this story. Help us to sing Your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen.